This is a little low, but um, that's all right. I'm not going to stay put. No, actually, Frank, I'm not even going to. I'm going to wander around. But it's a, it's a tremendous object lesson. Um, <laughs> it's a tremendous object lesson I've been reading recently of uh, Lottie Moon, a famous Baptist missionary from Virginia, I think it was. And uh, sometime after the Civil War, so maybe the 70s, 1870s, 1880s, she went off to China as a missionary. She was only four and a half feet tall. So it just made me think of Lottie Moon, this little thing. It would have served her well. But uh, interesting story, Lottie Moon. Yeah, she went out from Virginia, single, as a missionary, off to China. If memory serves me correctly, I think I'm right. She never went home again. She spent 30, 40 years in China and died during the First World War due to complications related to malnourishment. In other words, she starved to death. So this tiny little woman, you can picture her, four and a half feet tall, uh, from the States, 1870s, off she went, China, spent four or five decades there, and then basically died of starvation And just as I was sitting there staring at this, thinking that's awfully low, my mind went to Lottie Moon and the story of Lottie Moon. And then I'm sitting there thinking, asking myself, um, what drove that woman? That tiny little thing to say goodbye to country, family, all that was familiar to her, and go off... um, and die what was essentially an inglorious death. It was the fear of the Lord. And when I heard months ago that that was the theme of this conference, you were bringing together foreign missions and the fear of the Lord, I just went through this series of emotional responses. Uh, initially, I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, that's just, that's interesting. That's, uh, that's kind of uh, compelling. I get it. And then that gave way to this uh, growing excitement and enthusiasm as I sat in the fear of God. And I realized that I was getting so excited about it because these are two themes that have loomed large in my thinking for decades. When I was a little boy, yes, going way back, I was enthralled with missions and missionaries. Couldn't get enough of it. Uh, I think a lot of that due to my parents, they were very missions-minded, and they were constantly, regularly hosting missionaries in the home, missionaries in on a Saturday, on a Sunday for a meal, missionaries staying in our home, I would have to give up my room, often ended up sleeping on the couch because there were missionaries passing through, you know, visiting or on furlough, fundraising or whatever, And I met missionaries serving in Japan, Uruguay, Chile, Pakistan, Zambia. And it just opened up this fascinating world. And then I started to read biographies. The big ones, Amy Carmichael, right? Uh, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, and even some lesser-known missionaries. Tiernus Wilson, Fred Arnett. Agnes MacDonald, names forgotten to the pages of history. 
but names that loom large in God's plan of salvation among the nations. And this just really captured me, stirred in me, instilled in me, implanted in me a desire to be a missionary. And as a teenager, maybe 17, 18 years of age, went off on my first short-term missions trip, equipped with my grade 10 French, off I went to France. Parlez-vous Francais? No, not at all. But it was a tremendous experience, growing experience. Another short-term trip to Jamaica, uh, to Russia, just after the, the wall came down and the Soviet Union opened up. And these were tremendous opportunities, just this young kid who basically knew nothing, but just eye-opening, wonderful to see what the Lord was doing around the world. And then when I was 19, I met this blonde, blue-eyed bombshell named Allison. She's not here. I can embarrass her. Down in St. Catharines, we courted for four years and uh, talking about missions. I want to be a missionary. I want to serve the Lord overseas. And so I don't recommend this, but uh, basically three months after we were married, off we went to Jamaica for two months and worked just short-term down there. And then two months after that, off we went. We'd barely been married six months. Off we went to Africa. And we served for a year in Angola, in southwest Africa, and Zimbabwe, in central South Africa. Back to Canada for a couple of years uh, to get a little more training, let the ground stabilize a little bit under our young married lives. And then off we went again. The plan was to go to Angola as missionaries, serve long term. So we went to Portugal. Why did we go to Portugal? Because Angola is a Portuguese-speaking nation. So we went to Portugal to learn Portuguese. And then off we went to Angola. We were there maybe three or four months, but Angola was in civil war. And you were pretty restricted to the capital city, couldn't travel around. And so we decided, well, let's just go back to Portugal and serve the Lord there. And we spent the next five years ministering in Portugal. I would go around knocking on doors uh, sharing the gospel, handing out literature. I had a little bookstore that I ran in the town where we lived called Santa Maria de Feira, Holy Mary of the Fair. And Allison taught English as a second language in a couple of schools, and we labored away. Returned back to Canada, but I have, oh, this, that interest in the Portuguese-speaking world has stayed with me ever since. And been back to Portugal a couple of times, Brazil a couple of times, a couple of my books translated into Portuguese which was a tremendous, tremendous thing for me. And i um, still very fascinated with what the Lord is doing in Brazil and Portugal, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, all of these Portuguese-speaking places of the world. Because you may not know, Portuguese is the fourth most, most widely spoken language in the world. There are more Portuguese speakers than there are Spanish speakers. Why? Because the population of Brazil is greater than all of the rest of South America put together. Huge nation, Brazil. So I have a real interest with foreign missions. And then this whole idea of the fear of God. Well, I, what was it, 1998. I do recommend books to you once in a while, don't I? In my classes. Have, have I, uh, you are keeping a list, right? Um, well, here, I don't know. I can't remember what I recommend. You probably get sick of it. I probably recommend the same one over and over again. But um, A Quest for Godliness. Sam, have I pushed that one on you? No, you've heard of it, but I haven't recommended that one. Oh, add it to your reading list. 
I was asked recently three books that the Lord has used to change the course of your life. I'll spare you the other two, but this was one of them. A Quest for Godliness by J.I. Packer. A Quest for Godliness, the Puritan Vision of the Christian Life. It was 1998, and it was the closest I have ever come to an epiphany. And the Lord used that to uh, get a hold of me and to change the entire trajectory of my life. And I immersed myself in that body of literature by the Puritans. And a couple of the first books I read from among the Puritans were these. John Bunyan, The Fear of God, interestingly enough. Highly recommend that one. And John Flavel, a treatise on fear. That was it. The fear of the Lord implanted deep within me. What does it mean to fear God? Not long after that, the year was 2000, 2001, I was down a little uh, bookstore in Welland. It was from down that way. I don't even know if that bookstore is still there. It was run by Joel Beakey's brother. I think his name is John Beakey. And just this little bookstore down there in, uh, in Welland. And I wandered in one day, and I was just perusing the, the shelves and all the books. And there was this five-volume set that grabbed my attention because it was unbelievably ugly. Orange. Just this ghastly orange color. And this name George Swinnick on the side of it. And so I grabbed these five volumes and uh, sat down there on the floor in this little bookstore in Welland, and I started to thumb through them. George Swinnick, oh, 1660s, always one of these Puritan guys. And I was just leafing through all the pages, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That turned into my Ph.D. dissertation, those ghastly orange-covered books. That was what the Lord used to lead me to George Swinnick and turned into my Ph.D. The and so when I heard this was the theme that we were going to bring together foreign missions and the fear of God, um, I was and I continue to be unbelievably excited because when I think of the likes of a Lottie Moon and I think of those men and women of old yesteryear, men and women of today, who are serving not only overseas but faithfully right here at home, Oh, the fear of the Lord looms large. It is the difference. I believe it is the difference between longevity in ministry, the difference between faithful ministry and a life that perhaps could have been, dare I say it, better spent. So I've been tasked with a very simple responsibility. I wish I could get into the relationship between the fear of God and missions. I can't. All I've been asked to do is explain to you what are we talking about when we use that phrase, the fear of God. And I'm just glancing at the clock because I just realized I don't have a clue when we're supposed to be done. Frank, what's, what's the target? Evan, you better set a time or it's going to be lunch. Be generous. Be liberal. Conference. Give me a time. 10 to 11. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I won't. Yeah, it'll be close. But yes, 1045 or 10 to 11. We'll see how we go. So do you understand what we're doing then? The fear of the Lord. I've got my little trusty clicker here taped together. 
the batteries just barely hanging on. Let's see high-tech stuff here, folks. Let's see how it goes. There we are. There's our text. So by the time I'm finished with you, um, I've got my Bible here, and if I need to go somewhere else, I will open it. But what I've tried to do is put all the verses on the screen because I'm going everywhere. And to open the Bible, you'll just be there rifling through it. Just you pay attention to the screen. You can jot down the references if you like. And if something comes to mind, I think I've missed, well, then we can't. I'll actually open it and go there. Otherwise, all the texts right here, very simple in front of you. So this is the one. By the time we're done at 11.15, let not your heart envy sinners. This is what I want us to really get. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Proverbs 23, 17. Say it a couple of times, you'll have it memorized. Let not your heart envy sinners. That's interesting. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue, devote yourself, persist in the fear of the Lord all the day long. That phrase, the fear of the Lord, you will find it over 300 times in the Old Testament. I think it's pretty important. You will find it in the New Testament. It's there, not as frequently, but you'll find the words godly or godliness. Their root in the original, in the Greek, comes from fear. Whenever you see that word godly, godliness, you could substitute the fear of the Lord. It's the same concept. It's the same idea. It's from Genesis right through to Revelation. But it is confusing. And here's why it's confusing. As we read the Bible, the Bible exhorts us, Fear God. You got that? That's simple. There's an instance, a case in point. 1 Peter 1.17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Pretty straightforward, right? You're tracking with me? The Bible commands us, exhorts us, tells us, fear God. So far, so good? But here's why it gets confusing. You then go to the likes of 1 John 4, 18. What do we learn? There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so I'm, you know, I'm just trying to figure this out. I'm reading the Bible to another page. Well, I'm not supposed to fear God. I'm left with a very perplexing question. Well, which is it? Am I supposed to fear him or am I not supposed to fear him? Is fear a good thing or is fear a bad thing? I hope you're catching on by now that when the Bible speaks of fear and speaks of fearing God, it is using the expression in two distinct ways. Did you get that? If not, you'll be lost. You're tracking. And so two distinct ways. There is what we might call... Work down the left side of the screen. There is in the Bible what we can call a holy fear, a godly fear. Or here we go, we're going to get really fancy, a filial fear. That is the fear of a son for his father, toward his father. You got that? That's the left side. Now move over to the right side. There is also in the Bible... What is described as an unholy, 
or ungodly or servile fear. Servile. The fear of a servant or slave toward his master. And so, as you're reading Genesis through Revelation, and you encounter literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds hundreds of references and descriptions of what it means to fear God, you must ask yourself a very simple, straightforward question, of which fear is this text speaking? Is it speaking of a holy, godly, filial fear, or is it describing an unholy, ungodly, servile fear? Here are a couple of cases in point. You're with me now. Use your sanctified imagination. The children of Israel, you can see them. The ten plagues in Egypt culminating in the death of the firstborn. And out they come, led by Moses from the land of Egypt. They approach the Red Seas, the waters part. They cross over the dry land and they see the Egyptian armies washed away. They finally arrive at the base of Sinai. What happens at Sinai? There's a theophany, a physical, tangible manifestation of the glory of God. They hear the trumpet blast. They see the lightning, the smoke, the thunder, the mountain quakes. And the Israelites fear. They are afraid. Moses says to them, now look very carefully at what Moses says. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Well, Moses is talking out of both sides of his mouth. Which is it? Don't fear, fear. Don't fear, fear. He is referring to two different kinds of fear. We have exactly the same thing in 1 Samuel chapter 12. What happens there? The days of the judges are drawing to a close. Samuel, the great prophet, will soon breathe his last. And the children of Israel, they have requested a king. And in requesting a king, they have made it clear that they have rejected Yahweh, their covenant God, as their king. And Samuel says, fine, I'm going to give you a king. We all know who that king's going to be, Saul. And uh, Samuel adds to that, yes, okay, we're going to give you a king, uh, but God's going to demonstrate his displeasure with your request. What time of year is it? It's the wheat harvest. And there's this terrible storm. God sends thunder and lightning and hail among the Israelites. And they drop to their knees. They are afraid. They fear. And Samuel says to them, again, note, it's interesting. Do not be afraid. It's the same word in the Hebrew, in case you're wondering, every instance. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Only fear the Lord. And serve him faithfully with all your heart. Don't fear, but fear. Don't fear, but fear. It's exactly the same thing Moses says. Here Samuel repeats it. There is evidently two ways to fear God. John Bunyan, I referenced the book earlier, The Fear of the Lord. He writes, mark it. Take note. Don't mistake it. Make sure you understand this. In referencing those two verses, here are two fears. 
a forbidden fear and a commended fear. A forbidden fear, that is this unholy, ungodly, servile fear, versus a commended fear, a holy, godly, filial fear. Now, the question you should be asking yourself, the question I wrestled with back in 1998 is simply this. So what is the difference between these two fears? How do we account for this forbidden fear, this commended fear? What are the lines of demarcation? How do I know if one is ungodly, one is godly, one is servile, one is filial? There it is, summed up as succinctly as I can put it. They differ in their cause. What causes the fear? And they differ, secondly, in their effect. How does it influence me? What impact does it have upon me? Or sticking with the word on the screen, what is the effect in my life? Is that clear? Cause and effect. Cause and effect in distinguishing between a forbidden fear and a commended fear. So you think then of the forbidden fear, that which is servile, ungodly, unholy. What causes it? I can do no better than this definition from William Perkins. He writes, servile fear occurs when a person only fears the punishment of God. That's what's going on with the Israelites at the base of Sinai. God is a threat. That's all he is. He's a boogeyman who's just shown up, someone who's out to get us, and they fear punishment. And Moses says to them, don't fear God like that. The glory of God has come among you that you might fear him with a filial fear. It's exactly the same thing with the Israelites in the day of Samuel. The hail comes crashing down. The wheat harvest is destroyed. They know they've displeased God. God's judgment stares them in the face, and they are afraid. They fear only the punishment of God. And Samuel says, don't fear God like that. Yes, this manifestation of his glory has come. Fear him. That is with a filial fear. We have other instances in Scripture, I'll get to them in just a moment, in their sin and rebellion. And so when the Israelites perceive God's judgment is drawing near, and when God is perceived to be a threat, God is perceived to be a threat to their physical well-being, yes, they will make changes. Yes, they'll tear down their bale for a season. Yes, they'll turn aside from sin for a while. But the moment the threat is removed, what are they doing? They're back chasing after their idols. They're back indulging in sin. Why? Because it is a servile fear. It is motivated only by this fear of punishment. And as soon as the threat of punishment is removed, Back they go again, headlong, into their sin. A couple other examples of that in Scripture. Do you remember the Egyptian officials? It's during the plagues, ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. Plague number seven, the hail, somewhere around number seven, maybe six. We'll say seven. It's the plague of the hail. And as Moses threatens this seventh plague, the hail's going to come, destroy the harvest. We read that Pharaoh's 
officers, his government officials, his servants, what do they do? They fear God. And so how do they respond? They bring their livestock in from the fields in order to protect it. And as soon as the hail comes, passes away, what do the servants of Pharaoh do? What does Moses say to them? Based on their response and their unwillingness to repent, he tells them, you do not yet fear the Lord. And so they are motivated for a season to do something, to avoid the punishment of God. But once the threat has passed by, it has made no lasting change in their lives. Exactly the same thing in 2 Kings 17, the foreign inhabitants. Assyria has overthrown the northern kingdom of Israel. And they've carted off the captives into these foreign lands. And they've transplanted foreigners into the land of Israel. And these foreigners, they serve foreign gods. And so God sends lions among them. And they're terrified. And they realize they've offended the God of the land. And they fear. And so they ask the king to help them. What does the king do? The king sends one of the priests who's off in captivity, back to the land to instruct the people in the ways of the worship of the Lord. And they implement some of these ways. They worship the Lord and their own gods. Oh, yes, they feared. Yes, they feared God. They feared God because there were roaring lions among them. They feared God because he was a perceived threat to their well-being. But as soon as the perceived threat was gone, they were back worshiping their idols and engaging in countless innumerable sins. Are you getting the idea? And here's what you must really grasp. It is this. What lies at the root of servile fear? Has anybody guessed? Hate. That's what lies at the foundation of servile fear. It is hate. It is a fear stirred by hate. This object, whatever it is, in this case, God himself, is a threat. A threat to me. A threat to my well-being. A threat to what I want to do, what I want to be. And for a season, yes, that fear might cause me to make some changes in my life. Yes, for a time, that fear might cause me to even turn my back on sin. But that fear ultimately makes no lasting impression upon me because at the root of that fear is actually hate. And what actually resides at the root, the foundation of that fear, is a desire that God would just go away. Have you heard my hippo story? How many times have you heard my hippo story? Some of you have probably heard it three or four times. Well, guess what? I'm not going to tell it again. Have you heard my scorpion story? Ooh, some of you are thinking, finally, he's got some new stuff. I've never told you my scorpion story. I have. Standing there, it was crawled across my foot. And it was like this, it was like this big. <laughs> my snake story. I've, ha I've had some unbelievable encounters with animals, I'll tell you. The diamondback, you've heard that one? Well, I can't, don't have time. The time is ticking. But in each and every case, you can imagine what? I was afraid. I was afraid of that hippo, afraid of that diamond back right there on the ground staring at me, afraid of that scorpion crawling across my foot. Afraid why? 
because I perceive these things to be dangerous to me. I perceive these things to be threatening to me. I perceive that these things could cause my life to be very unpleasurable at the moment. That is fear. But it's a fear driven, therefore, by what? Hate. And a desire that those things would what? Go away. That's servile fear. I know young people. I grew up with some young people. Professing Christians, they had nothing but a servile fear. You know, hellfire, brimstone, and they could, uh, yeah, they could rhyme off all the books of the Bible, tons of verses memorized, busy this, busy with that. Yeah, 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 they knew all the verbiage, right? Come on, all the Christianese. And um, servile fear. It was enough to keep them on track until they were 17, 18, early 20s. And then they just kind of got over this idea of God sort of threatening, God out to get me. And uh, no staying power then when it came to faith in the Lord Jesus. No staying power, no resilience, no perseverance when it came to walking in the ways of the Lord. As a matter of fact, today, unbelievably antagonistic to God. Why? Because at the root of their fear and their apparent Christianity what resided essentially hatred of God and a desire to throw off the threat, a desire simply to get a get-out-of-jail card for free. And the moment they were able to convince themselves that that threat was no longer real or kind of minimize that threat, uh, there was no devotion. There was no commitment. There was no vitality. There was no relationship with the Lord Jesus because all there was was a servile fear at the root of which resided hate. All right, you understand all that? I hope because I'm sure it applies to at least one here. Don't be offended. I'm just going by sheer averages. Sheer averages. I've been around long enough to know. Sheer averages, there's at least one here. You needed to hear that and take stock and actually examine, well, what does motivate me? in terms of my relationship with the Lord? And how do I perceive him? And why do I do what I do? And is it possible that my good behavior, my attendance even here at Heritage Bible College, and my involvement in the church, it's really just because I perceive God as a threat. I want to get God off my back. I want to make sure God doesn't make my life miserable. I want to make sure I sort of keep up my end of the bargain. I'll do good stuff. And God will keep up his end of the bargain and make my life go well. And all will be rosy. My friend, that's a servile fear. Just one of you maybe I'm speaking to. That is a servile fear at the foundation of which lurks hate. In marked contrast, I trust you're still with me, filial fear. What is the cause of filial fear? It's when we move beyond perceiving God merely as a threat, fearing his punishment, and we apprehend God as a great being and as a good being. This spawns fear, godly fear, holy fear, filial fear, reverence fueled by love. There's the difference.
God isn't merely a threat. He is that. He is a judge. But when we enter into filial fear, that commended fear, we are now seeing God in his fullness as he reveals himself to be in Scripture. And we are enthralled and raptured with a great being and a good being. And the fear we now experience toward him is this reverence fueled by love. I have given this considerable attention over the years. And I could write and write and speak and speak on this ad nauseum. I won't bore you with it all. As I thought on it, I've just tried to narrow it down to three central motifs. Really speaking in many ways from my own experience as I've wrestled with Scripture. That if I really want to understand this reverence fueled by love. And really want to come to grips with this great being, good being. What is it that must take root in the soul? And uh, I've come to the conclusion that there are three central motifs that must have preeminence in the heart. If I'm really going to know what this filial fear is all about, it is this. Number one, God is my sovereign. That's the first. He's a great being. God is my sovereign. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 15, 16, thereabouts, he says that... Uh, God is the blessed and only sovereign, right? You know it. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. He is my sovereign. His sovereign rule, his way. It's absolute, isn't it? Paul says there at the end of Romans chapter 11 that all things are from him. God is the efficient cause of everything. All things are through him. He is the instrumental cause by which all things exist and continue to be. And all things are for him. He is the final cause for which all things exist, meaning this universe is simply the stage upon which he has chosen to display his glory. He is an absolute sovereign. And his way is incomprehensible, Paul says there at the end of Romans 11, quoting from the book of Job. As Job wrestles with God and tries to discern God's way with him, ultimately he is left with but one conclusion. He lies prostrate before the incomprehensible God. You see, our minds, finite mind, and our bound intellect is trying to comprehend the boundless. Our limited understanding trying to grasp he who is limitless, a great being. And his way is absolute. His way is incomprehensible. And his way is perfect, the psalmist says. Psalm 18, verse 30. God's way with his people is perfect. Do you believe that? His way with Lottie Moon was perfect when she starved to death in China during the First World War. Do you believe that? Mm. His way with Job was perfect as he mourned the death of his children and sat there scraping the boils from his flesh. God's way with Joseph was perfect. As he cries out to his brothers for help as he languishes in the pit, 
as later there he is wrongly, unjustly accused, condemned, and imprisoned, that entire episode of Potiphar's wife. Well, God's way with Naomi was perfect, wasn't it? Even as she stood beside the graves of her husband and two sons. Hmm. God's way, God's way with Jonathan was perfect. Even as he has passed over for David. Why wasn't Jonathan made king? That one's, that one's troubled me since I was a teenager. One of the good guys. Why wasn't Jonathan made king? Passed over for David. And Jonathan dies beside his psychotic father at the end of a Philistine sword. God's way with David was perfect. Even when David flees out the back door of the city of Jerusalem, running, scurrying away like a scared rabbit as Absalom advances with his armies. God's way with Paul, perfect. Even as he sits in a dark prison cell in Rome, all have left me and pens that final letter to Timothy. Oh, his way is absolute. His way is incomprehensible. And his way is perfect. He is my sovereign. And he is a great, great being. Building on that, he is my redeemer. Right? Amen, all you Baptists. He is my redeemer. And so Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, what did God do? Sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, rescue, deliver those who were under the law. You and me, we were under the law. What does that mean? It means we had a twofold debt. We had a twofold obligation. Firstly, we had to fulfill the law. We had to obey it perfectly. Secondly, we had to pay the penalty for having broken that law. We can do neither. Praise God, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, a man, under the law. He was born with that twofold obligation. And he obeyed it perfectly. And he paid the penalty fully upon Calvary's cross. And in so doing, he has secured a glorious salvation, a glorious redemption. He has rescued us from judgment, from condemnation from the very wrath of God. One of the old Puritans put it so well. Thomas Watson, I think it was, he said, oh, friends, it was in one of his sermons, this is way back in the 1600s, oh, friends, God is far more willing to pardon than punish. That's great. Oh, friends. You can just picture them preaching to his little half-full church in the countryside of England. Oh, friends. God is far more willing to pardon and punish. We cry with David in Psalm 51, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. A promise fulfilled, secured, absolutely certain because of Christ's work of redemption whereby we now come to God, our sovereign, and know him as our redeemer. And thirdly, I want to say perhaps most importantly, perhaps, so I qualified it, right? I tend to think it is the most important, but perhaps most importantly, he is our father. J.I. Packer said this is the climax of the Bible. God is our father. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because we are sons, we cry, Abba, Father. And so the Father reveals his love for us, sets it upon us before the foundation of the world. The Son reveals the Father's love in time, offering up himself upon Calvary's cross. And the Spirit seals the Father's love to us and testifies to it, witnesses to it, whereby the love of God, Paul says in Romans 5, is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Tom is good when he gives the best illustration of this I have ever heard. He encourages his readers to imagine that father and son walking in the countryside. There he is, dad with his little three-year-old, four-year-old son, hand in hand as they walk along, enjoying the creation all around them. The question is this, does the son know his father loves him? Yes, he knows his father loves him. His father provides for him. His father protects him. His father plays with him. His father disciplines him when necessary. The son knows his father loves him. But suddenly, unexpectedly, the father picks up his son, puts him into one of those bear hugs when he can, the little guy can barely breathe, plants a huge kiss on his forehead and whispers in his ear, I love you, son. Information. He has not suddenly acquired any new information, but he now knows the Father's love in a manner he never knew it before. Doesn't he? It's become alive to him. It is the Spirit's witness. As the Spirit takes Scripture and speaks to us by the Word of God, the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God and testifying to us that we are indeed the children of God, and God indeed is our Father. John Owen says, jot this one down if you have a pen handy. Put it up on the refrigerator. Put it on Facebook. Do what you want with it, but never forget it. When God is seen as a Father, filled with love, the soul is filled with love to Him in return. I'll just pause, catch my breath. Wish I had my coffee up here handy, but it's way over there. Just let that sink in. When God is seen as a father, yes, he is my sovereign. It's wonderfully encouraging. Yes, he is my redeemer. Oh, that too is encouraging and comforting. Oh, but this one. When God is seen as a father filled with love, the soul is filled with love to him in return. We love him as we consider his perfections, incomparable power, incomparable wisdom. Yes, some of you should be thinking of George Swinnick's little blue book. Right? Right? Yep. Incomparable power, incomparable wisdom, incomparable goodness. Oh, we love him as we consider his works. They are wondrous in majesty. We love him as we consider his willingness to justify the ungodly. That's you, by the way, and me his willingness to justify the ungodly. We love him as we consider his willingness to receive us as sons, as children, adopted into his family. And we love him as we consider his promise to watch over us and never leave us. That is the cause of filial fear. Now just look at me. Look. Do you see how different it is from servile fear? cause at the root of servile fear is hate. 
What is at the root of filial fear? It is love. It is reverence fueled by love. What is the effect of servile fear? It might cause the individual to make some changes for a season, but it really doesn't make any lasting impression upon the soul. What is the effect of filial fear? It is a principle, says John Flavel, planted by God in the soul, whereby it is inclined to do what he loves and avoid what he hates. Scripture itself puts it as follows. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is what? To hate evil. There's the cause of filial fear. God's greatness and goodness. My sovereign, my redeemer, my father. There is the effect of filial fear. It makes a divorce between sin and the soul. What was our text that we began with? Do not envy, right? Sinners, but what? Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. And we'll give Matthew Henry the final word. There it is. Because it's quarter two. Bang on. Well done. I just asked, well done, Stephen. Well done. Of all things, of all things that are to be known, This is most evident. God is to be feared. This is so the beginning of knowledge that those know nothing who do not know this. Our Heavenly Father, we do pause. We bow our heads, our hearts in your presence. And we do worship you because you are indeed a great God. You are the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And you are good. And you do good. And we see the revelation of your goodness in the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world and the sending of your Spirit into our hearts. And we pray, our Father, that by your Spirit you would impart understanding this day. Give us minds to grasp and to perceive this. And, O Spirit of God, incline our hearts to it. May we be strengthened in faith strengthened in love, and strengthened in hope, and that truly we might be filled by the Holy Spirit through believing. Bless this conference, we ask it. And as we build this bridge and make this connection between what it means to fear you and your plan to extend your fear among the nations, we pray that we might be encouraged. We pray that we might be challenged. And we seek it from you in the wondrous name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.